1: On this episode of Newt's World, in the October 31st edition of the National Review, my guest wrote an op-ed entitled, On Healthcare, the GOP Needs a Supply-Side Approach with Better Messengers. And his piece caught the attention of a member of our team, Joe DeSantis, who works with me on healthcare policy and reform. I've been working on the issue of healthcare for more than 30 years, and it's one of the most challenging public policy issues today. And I wanted to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act's impact on Medicare and drug development. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Thomas Philipson. He is the Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy Studies Emeritus at the University of Chicago, the Harris School of Public Policy, and directs the Becker Friedman Institute's program on foundational research in healthcare markets and policies within the Health Economics Initiative. He has served in several public sector positions, including as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors from 2017 to 2019, and as its chairman from 2019 to 2020. Thomas, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
2: Thanks for having me
1: let's start, if we could, before we get into health policy, just with your background, which is fascinating. You were born and raised in Sweden and got your undergraduate degree in mathematics at Uppsala University. But then you came to the States and got your MA and PhD in economics from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. How big a transition was it coming from Sweden to Pennsylvania?
2: Well, it was certainly eye-opening. And I always say, you know, you learn more about your own country when you leave it than when you're staying in it, because you saw the contrast, which was quite remarkable at the time. And I came in during a period when Reagan was president. So you saw a lot of different approaches than I've seen in Sweden. I was fairly new and being sort of Buried in mathematics textbooks as a youngster, I didn't pay so much attention to politics. But then when I started to study economics, my awareness kind of became more solid of the differences.
1: So, I mean, you've had an interesting sort of back and forth between, on the one hand, academic work, and another actually being in government, and then also being active as advisor to politicians and being involved. It's sort of like three different worlds that you blend together. Do you learn things in one of them that you then carry over to the other?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a fourth pillar, which is also very important as a complementary pillar. I co-founded a company that grew quite quickly from 2005 that we sold in 2015. And as an economist, running a company was invaluable in terms of understanding sort of the policy impacts of some of the stuff we were studying firsthand as a small business owner. As somebody
1: who's been in the marketplace as well as studying the market, did you find yourself changing your own views by the practical activity of trying to make a profit and meet customers and do all the things companies have to do?
2: Yeah, exactly. So that was the sort of the big, not eye-opener, but it's different things when you experience things versus when you read them, right? So I think there was a huge difference in reading about what's the effect of deregulation, what's the effect of lower corporate taxes, et cetera, and actually experiencing it. So I think that was by far the most important component in making me a better economist, together with my training, obviously. But that combination, I think, made a huge difference in how I viewed policy going forward.
1: And how does that experience of growing a company Affect the way you think about healthcare.
2: I mean, in terms of healthcare, was it, we actually served a lot of Fortune 500 healthcare companies. It was a business-to-business where we provided health economic analysis for many companies, including payers, including public payers, governments, biotech companies, pharma companies, and hospitals, etc. So you certainly got an inside view of how the industry operated. And that certainly you know, influenced the research topics that you found of interest in academia I and mean, certainly the policy stance you took when I worked in government.
1: Your article, I thought, made really some very powerful points. And I wanna start with a point you make that the Democrats have a pretty consistent lead, have all have had for years a lead on the health issue. And in October 22, they had about a 15% lead over congressional Republicans over who do you trust on healthcare. Why do you think Democrats have sustained that consistent advantage even though their solutions don't seem to work?
2: I think there's bipartisan support for that. When the poor are in need in care, we need to have a safety net to take care of poor patients. I think pretty much everyone agrees on that on both sides of the aisle. The question is then, why do we need these universal programs such as Medicare, etc.? And why do we need so much government involvement in, in providing that help to the poor? And that's where I think the missing link is in convincing people that you know we think competition and supply side expansions are great for most industries, but for some reason we think that in healthcare, we're going towards the European single payer gradually over time. If you just look at the share of financing of healthcare, it's gone up now to roughly 55, closing on 60% being publicly financed. And it's trending slowly every year in the direction of 100%. But if you think of a single payer, it's really a monopoly where you're forced to pay the price for the monopoly services, which most people in other industries would think to be absurd. But for some reason, when you force people to pay taxes instead of having volunteer premiums to competing firms, having mandatory taxes to monopoly government plan, people tend to think that's a good idea for some reason. And that's where I think the missing link is. I think Republicans have viewed us not as compassionate because it gets confused that if you're disagreeing with these public health care programs, you're disagreeing with taking care of frail people, which I don't think is the disagreement. It's the disagreement on how you do it.
1: I get the Daily Mail every day from London and the National Health Service, which has been, I guess, the most widely recognized government monopoly health delivery system in the world is just disintegrating. I mean, it's falling apart. People are dying. The current conservative government seems to have no answers. The Labor Party is beginning to offer some timid answers. But I would have thought that anybody who watched the decay of the British National Health Service would think, maybe that's not a very good direction for us to go in.
2: Well, there's two things going on. One is public financing, which should be separated from public production of healthcare. So in the U.S. they have both, right? They both have tax financed care and the government is providing that care in public hospitals, et cetera, paying the doctors in the hospitals. So it's a deterioration in the UK. Whenever you have that and everything is free on the margin, you have what economists call excess demand. You have more buyers than sellers when things are free on the margin. It's not free because the taxes pay for it. But after you're done paying taxes for it, You have quote-unquote free health care. And a lot of more buyers are interested in that than sellers are because the sellers get paid by the government very poorly. So you have this enormous queuing taking place, which is the waiting times. You can't get elective surgery within six months sometimes in the U.K. And you have a deterioration of care because a lot of good doctors figure out that they can earn more, particularly in the U.S., for their skills than the government is paying them in the UK. So I think, you know, low supply, excess demand, because of the distorted pricing, has led to sort of a crisis currently, particularly with the strikes they're going through with the nurses, etc., in the UK currently.
1: If that's not the option for our future, how would you expand on that idea? And what would a supply-side healthcare approach look like?
2: Well, it turns out a lot of issues. We have very costly care in the U.S. Some of it is because we have higher quality, right? So if you, for example, look at we've done a lot of that work. If you look at a cancer diagnosis and pick a patient in a given stage of a cancer, let's say breast cancer stage three, they live a lot longer in the U.S. than other countries because we have higher quality care, essentially. So some of the higher prices we see in the U.S. is just higher quality. But some of it is also because the government gets in the way of the supply side by basically with well-intended regulations and legislation, they're basically blocking competition. So my favorite example, if you look at LASIK, you know, eye surgery or cosmetic surgery, you have constantly declining real prices over time because those are working, those are medical care markets working like a normal market, essentially. Without insurance, and you have competition, you have advertising, you have everything that a normal market have, and you have declining real prices, quality-adjusted real prices going down as opposed to the rest of healthcare where it's going up. So that's an example where the government is not standing in the way of the supply in some sense. But if you look at much of, you know, doctors and hospitals and drugs, etc. The government many times restricts supply, and that's why I mean by a supply-side approach, that we should focus on how to expand supply. Why? Because that gets lower prices, which we all want, and then by consequence, you get higher access to a lot of people who can't afford care. For doctors, i give you an example. Doctors, 10% of medical school applicants actually get in. Imagine if we increase that percentage an AMA, loosen up its union essentially, how much more doctor competition we will get. So doctor salaries are about 25% of healthcare spending. Then you go to hospitals, which is 35% of healthcare spending roughly. And we have lost certificate of need laws, where boards decide on the state level whether hospitals can enter the market or not. That's you know a regulated entry barrier if you want. And if you go to drugs, we have a Medicare Part B program where doctor-administrated drugs, where doctors are essentially paid more the more expensive drugs they use, so you have very poor price competition in that market. It's essentially a market where the customers want higher prices, and therefore you get this explosive price growth in those types of drugs relative to other drugs. So I think those are examples, I think, where the government is standing in the way of adequate competition, which would essentially expand supply and lower prices and increase access.
1: But isn't it also true that the interest groups themselves stand in the way? Uh, We got involved at one point looking at a computerized analytics system that would allow you to only go to the ophthalmologist or the optometrist every other year. And then in the intervening year, you could literally do it by computer. And in almost every state, The lobbyist for the optometrist and ophthalmologist worked to outlaw that procedure, not because it was wrong, but because it reduced their income. So isn't there a certain amount of guild behavior, almost in an Adam Smith sense, where the guilds try to block competition or block additional people, make it hard to get new doctors or new hospitals?
2: Definitely. I mean, there's no question that the suppliers many times capture the legislature's through campaign finance and other means, but I'm talking about how do you get rid of those supply... I'm not a political scientist. I'm not the best to analyze how do we change our campaign finance laws to get rid of interest group influence. I think certain amount of influence by interest groups is very healthy because they know more about their industry so that many crazy sort of attempts of regulating industries gets fought off that way. On the other hand, some protective measures, collusive measures, etc., are also in the interest of these interest groups. And that's kind of the negative side of having an industry, which many times I think is very helpful in informing legislatures, which are by definition generalists and need specialized knowledge.
1: Where we need to go is to a level of competition and a level of fluidity, which is very threatening to a lot of these bureaucracies. Many of the hospitals and many of the insurance companies are as bureaucratic as the government.
2: It's true that once you're an incumbent in an industry that's protected by government barriers to competition, you wanted to keep the status quo, that's for sure. So there's an interest in the industry in keeping those government barriers up in some sense. I mean, FDA is even like that because you're keeping out some competition by other things that would potentially sell. FDA has a similar feature because once you get approved by FDA, it's great news. It's very hard to get approved by FDA, takes 10 years and 90% of failure rate, we'll talk a little bit about that in terms of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. But it's also a very good protector against competition because they're constantly telling competing alternatives that they can't market their drugs essentially. A lot of agencies have that feature that in the name of regulation or regulating something that's good, in this case, safety and efficacy of drugs, they at the same time provide enormous entry barrier into the industry.
0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we Prohibited by Law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You
1: know, you cite uh, approvingly a 2019 report from the Department of Health and Human Services, which was called Reforming America's Healthcare System Through Choice and Competition. And they really had a number of practical, common sense changes some of which will be fought bitterly by the current incumbents. But it did strike me that there are people out there who are beginning to understand what you're talking about and who are trying to figure out, you know, what would that more dynamic, more customer or patient-oriented system look like? Did you find that report in that sense helpful?
2: I found it helpful because I partly wrote it, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say that. CEA, Council of Economic Advisors, was heavily involved in that report, as was the National Economic Council through Brian Blaze mainly involved in that report. It was more of a White House effort than it was a department agency effort, I would say, especially given the focus on competition. So I think that's a source for people or listeners who are interested in this, particularly on the state level if they want to get ideas of what to do. I'm currently pretty heavily involved with Wisconsin in working with their initiatives. There are other people listening. There's a list of things we propose can be done there to basically increase competition and choice in healthcare markets under the current financing structure.
1: You have a particular sense that the Inflation Reduction Act was very destructive and set us on patterns that could in the long run be very, very damaging. Can you Comment on that.
2: The prelude to this is that economists have studied how important health is to overall economic well-being. We talk a lot about GDP growth, etc. But if you look at the biggest change the last century, what happened was, meaning 1900 to 2000, the biggest change was that life almost doubled in terms of the most valuable change. We estimate how valuable is you know additional living that you know any health related agency in the government has numbers on how we typically value that the FDA, CMS, or what have you within NIH. And if you take those numbers and say how much is the how much value have we gained from having better health or living longer the last century, it's on par with overall economic GDP growth. So think of GDP growth basically raising how your well-being in a given year, as opposed to longevity, which means how many of those years you can enjoy, essentially. Health is an extremely important component of overall well-being. And most people realize that common sense discussions realize that, you know, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, et cetera. So in that regard, I think the most important impact of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, was not any kind of inflation or even climate impacts that it has. Some, some people are skeptical about the climate impacts, but even if they had large climate impacts, the biggest impacts is the loss in longevity from clamping down on medical innovation. And medical innovation, many people think of as expensive, but like any innovation, medical innovation reduces costs as opposed to raises them and that sounds kind of counterintuitive when you talk about healthcare and the reason you should think about it is that this essentially reduces the cost of a better health as opposed to healthcare so think about breast cancer or hiv or similar diseases 40 years ago when you were diagnosed with those diseases you could not buy a longer life anywhere on the planet. So basically, a longer life was prohibitively expensive to buy. But then medical innovation brought that price down to patented levels and then further on to generic levels after that when patents run out. So one should think of innovation as basically being cost-reducing and the cost of better health is going down once innovation comes in. And that's the important part about IRA, I think, that it's greatly damaging to medical innovation.
1: At one level, it's hard to get people to focus on that because you're asking them to pay in the present for a potentially discounted future.
2: Well, I mean, the HIV patient who's diagnosed or the breast cancer patient who's diagnosed fully understand that the current cost will pay off in terms of longer living. But as a government, that's a little different trade off. And I think on the patient level, I think people are comfortable in healthcare investments in realizing that it will be a future payoff in better health. I think that kind of comes naturally to people.
1: You did an issue brief about this called The Impact of H.R. 576 on Biopharmaceutical Innovation and in Patient Health. You really believe that more people will die because we will have slowed down the production of new drugs. There's sort of a quantifiable expectation that's actually pretty staggering in terms of the number of people who may die because of that. Walk through with us how you think like this.
2: Yeah, so we basically took CBO's revenue estimates. We wanted to contrast it with CBO, which came out with a very small effect, which we thought initially didn't pass the smell test in some sense. So we wanted to line up our analysis compared to what CBO did. So if you take their revenue losses from these price controls, essentially it's roughly a 15% reduction in revenue. And then you go to the economic literature, there's a lot of papers on this, how much revenue losses translate into reduced investments in R&D. If you go to any VC firm or you go to any private equity firm who fund medical R&D essentially, for drugs, they will presumably ask, how profitable is this gonna be in the future? That is to say, how big is the disease and how much are you gonna charge for treatments and how much insurance coverage do patients have, et cetera, to figure out if they wanna invest in it. So clearly, R&D is sensitive to future profitability, but some lawmakers seems to disagree with that. I think that's kind of being divorced from reality. But regardless of their opinions, there's a lot of economic evidence that they are responsive. R&D investments are very responsive to future revenue. So if you take those estimates and then go back and say, how many more drugs get cut off because of this? You get much larger, magnitudes larger than CBO. CBO said that there would be less than 10 drugs lost over 20 years, which sounded very strange to us. And we had a finding that at least 135 would be lost given just the evidence base out there or what we know about how much r and gets cut when revenues get cut. Now, what we did after that was we went to earnings calls of publicly traded companies, which if you rely on these calls, you can go to prison. So there's some discipline on what the executives say about the company during these earnings calls. And if you look just at the first four months since the IRA passed, There's reports to three to five drugs being pulled already. So at a pace of four months, if you multiply that out, that's nine to 15 drugs a year. if you continue at that trend, CBO said 10 drugs over 20 years so that we would be done in one year if that initial trend continues, essentially.
1: So when you look at that, you're basically telling people you are going to pay more, but you're going to get dramatically better medicines being just a politician, you have to have ability to go to a town hall meeting and have somebody get up and say, so what are you going to do about the price of my drugs?
2: So I think that's a couple of things is what are these things buying, right? And then the question is, do we want to subsidize it on the consumer side, meaning the patient side? Do the government want to subsidize it and still pay the manufacturers a price that actually s- still keeps the incentive to innovate intact? So there's a separation with what economists call technically a demand and supply price in the market when you have subsidies. The demand price is what actually does the patient, if you take a Medicaid patient, they may pay zero for care. That doesn't mean the hospital gets zero. They actually get revenue that's equal to how much the government pays them. So the supply price, how much the supplier actually obtains is way above the demand price, what the customer actually pays. In the normal market, those two are the same. But when you have a subsidy, they're not. So the question is, how do you keep the incentive to innovate through public subsidies or reimbursement for these drugs intact while the patient at the town hall meetings does not scream at you? That's kind of the (laughs) tricky part of doing this.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Group void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway the great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup,
3: Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.
1: So in the long run, if you could wave a magic wand, what would the Philipson model of health be 10 or 15 or 20 years from now?
2: Well, it would be a lot more means tested, right? So, I mean, if anything, it would be Medicaid for all as opposed to Medicare for all, put it that way. I think voters wanna see, and therefore representatives should push that we do take care of the poor. The question how you do it, we can argue about what's the most efficient way of doing that. But there's no reason why people in the middle income and higher income should send their tax money to Washington, DC, having a centralized planning system that then sends them back their money in terms of healthcare, as opposed to having a competing market for a premium that they pay to individual health plans. And that's also the solution, I ultimately, I think, to our debt problem, which is very, very related because it's mostly Medicare and Social Security. Both Social Security and Medicare will be sooner or later, I predict, means tested a lot more just by reality kicking in. And then the question becomes, how do you do that in a way where that will be beneficial many times because you're not distorting the economy, collecting all these taxes for these programs that are just being basically a worse way of providing health care to the middle income and rich people. And the question becomes, how do you do that without having too much of a two-tier system, which people kind of object
1: to. I once had a discussion with Al Gore when we were negotiating a balanced budget, and we spent days and days and days in a room locked together talking. And I said, so let me get this straight. You would like to cap Medicare on the theory that if everybody could only buy a Chevrolet, the rich people would force Chevrolets to be really good. And so if you can coerce everybody into the same health system, your theory is that wealthy people will then insist the system be good. It was an interesting conversation, and that was his position. But there is a real resistance, much more in health than any other topic, to the idea that a price differential leads to a outcome differential. Because people really want this sense of it's my cousin or my daughter or whatever, and they have a serious illness. I want them to get the best care, period. And I don't think we have figured out how you structure that into a capitalist system.
2: Well, I think what you're talking about, Al Gore's point, which I think is particularly true for public regulation of private insurance, because once you have minimum benefits and health plans, et cetera, which the Democrats are favoring a lot, In that case, you're forcing the poor to buy a Cadillac, right? They're paying for these employment-based plans, but because they basically have all these patient bill of rights and you have to include this in the plan, you have to include that in the plan. Ultimately, that has to be financed by higher premiums and you're forcing people to buy a Cadillac as opposed to having a Honda, whatever you want to call it, plan that has lower quality at a lower price. And I think that's particularly dangerous once you start regulating private insurance that way, because then you're basically pricing out the poor out of the market, which we have seen a lot in the U.S., where plans are demanded to cover certain things, and then we worry why we have so much on insurance.
1: Well, as I understand it, one of the big downsides of the way they designed Obamacare is that the least expensive plans also have the highest deductibles So, you actually minimize preventive health and you minimize people taking care of themselves.
2: I mean, economists have long recognized that there's a trade off between providing insurance and having good incentives, right? So, if you're fully insured, you basically don't have the right incentives. But if you have no insurance, so, you know, then that's like the LASIK and plastic surgery you have good incentives. But once you get hit by something, you take an enormous financial hit. So you have no insurance. So that trade-off is kind of a balance. And what the deductibles do is trying to balance that. Let's get some better incentives in place for people to shop around under the deductible while still having catastrophic covers so that we don't face you with too much financial risk were you to actually have a serious disease or cancer or a traffic accident or what have you. So I think that trade-off has long been recognized, but it's the second best world you live in. You can't have both at the same time. You can't have full insurance and a lot of price shopping and at the same time have good incentives.
1: Have you looked much at the role of PBMs in the health system and how they've evolved?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me, the PBM is a mechanism for buyers to counter the monopoly power of the drug companies who have a patent. And you want a big buyer group that therefore can argue down. You want more monopsony power, if you want, on the demand side, meaning the buyers get together in a purchasing organization where they have negotiation for everyone through the PBMs. They do a lot of administration, et cetera. But the way they get used by plans is because they can buy drugs at lower prices than the individual plants that are using them can do on their own.
1: So from your standpoint, these series of very, very large intermediating systems seem to be almost inevitable.
2: Well, it's a consequence to being forced with a patent monopoly that could charge anything for you to live longer, right? So it's very in what economists call inelastic demand. It's very price insensitive demand. Once you're sick, you're willing to spend pretty much anything to get better. And in that situation, you can get very, very high monopoly prices because there's no disincentive from raising prices if customers don't disappear. So I think a natural response to that has been the PBMs or the large buyers as I think of them to kind of counter that monopoly power on the other side.
1: Which makes, in a sense, the whole concept of price transparency almost impossible to implement because there's so many different layers of deals and structures and givebacks.
2: I disagree a little bit that there's lack of transparency, The people who are paying have transparency, meaning health insurance plans, etc., who pay hospitals and doctors and drug companies have full transparency over how much they're paying. The customer shopping around does not have full transparency on his co-pays, et cetera, for a particular service or a particular drug that they're going to buy, but they're a very small share, 10% of overall spending roughly comes from co-pays. So the real payer is the plan and this full transparency of the plan, how much different doctors, hospitals, et cetera, charge. And that transparency is really what matters for the transaction. So if
1: you were trying to develop an approach to where we are now after the Inflation Reduction Act, in the new Congress, start having hearings about the number of companies that are simply not going to develop drugs for the United States anymore, which you sort of outlined, which is really pretty staggering. Politically, how do you then back off from the controls in order to
2: incentivize the innovation? You want to incentivize the innovation by the value that you bring to market. We've done, and other people have done as well, studies of If you take the health gains generated from a drug and say, how much is that worth using standard metrics of how much health is worth to people? And then you ask, what fraction of that value is captured as profits by the drug innovator? It's around 10% only. So 90% of the value they generate does not get captured as profit to the innovator. And if you think that's a bad world in some sense, I think people don't understand that, that there's an enormous amount of health generated, which is not captured in pharmaceutical prices. But even if you think that that's the world we live in, that those prices are too high, it's a separation again between how much do we reward innovation versus what does the customer see as a copay, which is really where the political fire starts. If you look at drugs, for example, they cost them a lot less than ICUs, but no one is yelling at intensive care units that they're too expensive because they don't see any copays from intensive care units. A lot of services within healthcare are much more expensive than drugs. And many times when drugs come online, they actually reduce overall spending of healthcare. Antidepressants gets rid of shrinks, statins get rid of heart surgeries, and hepatitis C drugs get rid of liver transplants. So, many times when these drugs come on, the drug spending goes up, but total spending goes down. And that is also not very well understood. So, there's a policy aspect of this, I think, where we want a lot more innovation. But then at the same time, there's a copay aspect where the voter reacts when they see that they're charged a lot more for co-pays, even though it's not necessarily overall a more expensive service or good.
1: That would actually be a pretty effective campaign to lay out a series of cases where this is how much we're saving you. So people begin to realize that if you think about total package of what you're going to pay as a taxpayer or what you're going to pay through your insurance company, that in fact, in many places, Pharmaceuticals are dramatic cost reductions, even though at the immediate point of purchase they seem expensive. But compared to, as you point out, you know, if my choice is taking a pill or having a liver transplant, I'll go for the pill. Yeah.
2: Now, not only is it cheaper in healthcare costs, it's also better quality of life, obviously. So, you know, so a lot of this you have the drug bill goes up, but it goes up less than the other costs go down. So total costs go down, right? So that has not been understood fully. And if you actually look at the aggregate numbers, that is what they indicate. We just had a study at University of Chicago showing that for the last 20 years, that when drug spending increases, overall spending gets reduced. And that's not captured enough, I think, in the policy debate.
1: There are a whole series of other kinds of costs that aren't captured in the way we currently measure these things.
2: There's a big debate on how you value these products, and we're not many times capturing the full value of them. But even with the metrics we have, many times they turn out to be very, very cost-effective relative to other forms of healthcare. I mean, it's kind of amazing how much scrutiny or evidence gets brought to bear on drugs relative to other parts of healthcare. We don't have any cost-effectiveness evaluation of procedures For example, the procedures are, you can't patent a procedure. So therefore innovators in procedures have no incentive to prove how good they are because you can't own the procedure as opposed to for medical products, whether it's devices or drugs, where there's ownership through a patent, then you have an incentive to actually show that it's high quality because you are the benefiter of the clinical trial showing that it's actually high quality. So, you have a lot of lack of evidence in parts of healthcare which dominates total spending, which is procedures. But no one is kind of yelling at that. They're all yelling at the drugs.
1: No, that's exactly right. This has been fascinating. And I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to mention to our listeners that in addition to reading your op eds, you've also written several books, including Innovation and Technology Adoption in Healthcare Markets, which we're going to link to on our show page at newtsworld.com. I wanna thank you, this has been a fascinating conversation. I wanna encourage you to continue to develop this whole supply side approach. And I can tell you that I'm taking out of this three or four new areas of research and innovation and politics that I think will give us a somewhat different conversation about how we move forward in health. I'm really grateful you take the time to talk with us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, I appreciate it.
1: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Thomas Philipson. You can get a link to his op-ed piece on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Slum. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review. So others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com/newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
3: work.
0: Zumo Play.